1: God bless everybody. I'm your host of OPP, Corey Cambridge. I'm about to get us started into a new exciting episode of the podcast. But before I do, I wanted to tell you about our new website, opp.news. OPP.News is the leader in podcast news and discovery, where you'll receive exclusive interviews from your favorite podcasters, get the latest in podcast industry news. And every day we feature a podcast episode of the day for you to listen to. So enjoy this dope episode of OPP and be sure to stay informed on the latest in podcasting and sign up for our newsletter on OPP.News. Hi,
2: I'm Dr. Mitch Eisen. I'm the host of True Crime, False Memory. And this is O-P-P.
1: Pa bless everybody. And welcome back to another episode of O-P-P. Other people's podcast highlights America's top podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is Dr. Mitch Eisen, host of the amazing podcast, True Crime, False Memory. This podcast brings you true stories of innocent people who are falsely accused, mistakenly identified, and put on trial for crimes they didn't commit. In each episode, Mitch explores a different case, starting with the crime, moving through the investigation, onto the trial, and of course, culminating in the verdict. In this interview, we're going to learn more about Mitch, his career working in forensic psychology, We get his podcaster's picks. And of course, we get into his dope show, True Crime, False Memory. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Dr. Mitch Eisen. Recorder's on. All right. Dr. Mitch Eisen, what's up, my man? Oh, man. So good to be with you. So good. How's things in Brooklyn? Dude, everything in Brooklyn is cool, man. I like your energy. You have a very like jazz on a Friday night. Like that, like, smoky bar in the 1960s energy. <laughs> Think, you. I, I like that. That's a cool scene. <laughs> oh, you were saying that you come from a music background. Are you a jazz musician?
2: No, no, man. Much the opposite. I, I come, I'm an 80s guy, man. Late 70s, I come from the punk rock tradition, you know.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah such a yeah. calm, very, very soothing demeanor. No, right on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast, Sadie May. For those who listen to the show, know that Sadie May is my pod sister. And when she loves the show, she lets me know. Like she will make that email, that text message happen. And she's like, "Oh my god! Like you have to listen to this show. We have to get them on OPP." And when she listens, I listen. Like she is my podcast voice, and she's a humongous fan of you and True Crime, False Memory. So it's such a pleasure. To have you on the show today. So cool. She is very cool. I've only met her recently via email, but she she seems like an awesome being. Super, super awesome. So Dr. Mitch Eisen, you are the forensic psychologist at Cal State. So I've never heard of forensic psychology. I've heard of forensic science. For listeners who aren't familiar with, with this, give me a little definition of what forensic psychology is. Yeah, forensic is this global term this umbrella term that's really
2: used for anything to deal with the law so forensic psychology is anything applied to psychology and the law you could easily say psychology and law i decided arbitrarily 20 years ago when i started or 20 plus years ago when i started a graduate program in forensic psychology to call it forensic psychology rather than psychology and the law and indeed, it's kind of a sexy title, gets a lot of applicants. Uh, it, it's attractive for folks. People are into things related to the law. They're into forensic science. They enjoy, as you know, both podcasts and television and movies related to it. And of course, what I do is things related to the law and the criminal justice system, but through psychology. Like, for example, my, I mean, the meat of what I do is really memory, when a lawyer has a case that involves issues of eyewitness memory, they'll call someone like me for consultation. So they can get up to speed on the research. I mean, lawyers can't be experts at everything, right? So if they got a case that involves DNA, they call DNA experts. There's bullets, they call ballistics. There's cell phones, they call a cell phone guy. If there's eyewitnesses, they call someone like me. And I get them up to speed on the science. I tell them where the science does or doesn't support the issues in their case. And of course, uh, if needed, come and explain it at trial. But that's just what I do in practice and what I do with the podcast. Of course, explain those stories. But basically, day-to-day life, I do research. I'm a research psychologist. The students in my lab, we, we do studies in eyewitness memory. Everything from children's suggestibility and false memories and folks with allegations of maltreatment to misidentifications from lineups to false memories in witnesses and the like.
1: Uh, how did you first get into you know, and develop a passion for, for this study?
2: Well, I'll tell you, it's—I didn't plan on it. It's like so many people in life—you fall into the stuff backwards, right? You just—you just find your way there through this crooked path. So, I'm in graduate school. I'm—I want to be a psychologist. Actually, as an undergrad, I wanted to be a lawyer. So, I was always interested in the law. And then I—I I met this crazy, cool professor, like so many people do in college, right? Who turned me on to psychology, and I took another class, and another class, and before you knew it, I was studying psychology and. And going on to graduate school. So I'm getting my PhD and I'm studying with this guy who's into hypnosis. And I think this is pretty cool stuff. This is the late 80s, early 90s. And what was happening at the time was insane. What was happening at the time was there was this wild theory out there that anyone who had any sort of problem was likely sexually abused when they were young. It's not correct. I mean, many people who have been sexually abused do have problems from it. Some people who've had these experiences are doing just fine. This was just a crazy theory and it found its way into the zeitgeist of the nation and therapists. And people were, the thought was, if you used hypnosis to help recover these memories, to find these memories that the person was often not aware of, then you could heal from them. Well, this, they were wrong. It turns out using hypnosis to help someone search for a memory can cause them to develop false memories. And this was just bizarre by anyone's thoughts at the time. Nobody really understood this. And there was this this really prescient researcher, Elizabeth Loftus. She's now at University of California, Irvine. And she figured out a way to demonstrate how false memories can be induced even without hypnosis, by reimagining these childhood events. And essentially, this, this practice of using hypnosis to recover these memories, it caused insanity at the time. People were going to jail. People were recovering memories of satanic ritual abuse right and left. In fact, people are going to jail all over the country on a regular basis, for being involved in satanic cults that didn't exist and engaging in these activities. Again, Loftus's research kind of pulled the pants down on all, all this, and it all came to an abrupt halt kind of quickly in the about the mid-90s. When I graduated and got my PhD, I needed a job. You know how it is. You graduate, you need a job. So I get this job, my supervisor at the hospital says, hey, I, I got this former student, he works at this unit, you should go work there at this hospital. And I ended up on a unit that was assessing allegations of abuse in children. Very cool work, I like working with kids, it sounded interesting, right? During the same time, while people were using hypnosis to induce these false memories, at the same time, there were rapid Cases of mass molestation. Why? Because there was this belief that these satanic cults were out there. And we have to go and interview all these preschoolers aggressively and find out if their teachers are involved and they're doing this. And again, people are going to jail. People are interviewing young children in this wildly suggestive manner, inducing false reports. And there I was. I was at ground zero. I found myself at this hospital and we were assessing hundreds of these kids a year. And so I said, hey, I could do this research. I mean, I had no interest in being a research psychologist at the time, had no interest in being a college professor. I was a clinical psychologist. But I said, I could do this. I could do this research. And indeed I did. And I got federal funding for it. And I got some collaborators. And and we did some pretty cool studies showing how suggestive questioning can lead to false reporting. And so- I was kind of falling into this and I started teaching part-time at various universities, Northwestern University and some others, and I found that I liked teaching. Started doing research, I found that I enjoyed that. And then in the mid-90s came OJ. And what OJ taught us all was DNA can show the truth in these cases. And we found in the coming years that many people were being falsely identified by eyewitnesses and DNA evidence was proving definitively that these highly confident false identifications were incorrect. And that really grabbed my interest. And um, I just said, I'm going to be an academic. I applied for jobs. There weren't many out there. There was one in Chicago. They said, no, thanks. That's where I was. There was one in Miami. There was one in L.A. So you can live in worse places than LA, it's sunny every day, <laughs> <laughs> and so off to LA we were. And uh, I started this graduate program in forensic psychology, and
1: that's how I found myself here. You know, from your your time in this field, you mentioned, you know, you know, way back in the eighties, and, and how things, you know, made a pivot with the OJ trial. Uh, how have things changed in the world of forensic psychology from then to now, as far as research and studies? Well, there's many areas
2: in forensic psychology or in psychology and law, everything from folks who are into false confessions or policy or or dealing with uh, folks who are in jail. And, and like my area, my slice of this world is eyewitness memory. And things are changing, man. People are listening. This is why I decided to do the podcast. One of the reasons, get the word out, to kind of bear witness to this it, with a firm belief that if... If the public understands these issues, then the courts will be pressed to also understand these problems and to start making advances in how they collect and preserve eyewitness evidence and how it's used in trial. I'll give a great example. Eyewitness evidence, for, you got to understand that eyewitness evidence is just like physical trace evidence. If it's not handled correctly, it can be contaminated And it could be easily changed and altered through mishandling or if somebody's being casual and obtaining the identification. California, just this week, I mean, well, this month, on January 1st, for the first time, has mandated that all identification tests, every time somebody gives someone a lineup, a photographic lineup, a, a three pictures over three pictures with the suspect in there to choose them. Every time this is done, it must be done double blind. I don't mean to get into technical stuff, but what that means is that means the officer doesn't know who the suspect is, so they don't have a dog in the hunt. So if they if they truly believe I've got the bad guy, they can't inadvertently influence the witness to say, you can imagine how innocently this can happen, right? Oh, I don't know. It could be two. It could be three. Three, you say? What's familiar about three? I noticed you're looking at two. What's familiar about two? Because we got two human beings sitting together in the same space. And these controls are not just to to control bad cops. I mean there's good cops and bad cops, there's good professors and bad professors, you know. There's good talk show hosts and bad talk show hosts. There's good and bad in every group. It's to to control the human element, to take the messiness out, to take the bias out. And from a social justice perspective, it couldn't be bigger. Cuz the people who get caught up in this are often the people of less means, the disenfranchised folks, the people of color. So this is a huge advance, a huge advance. And that advance is on the heels of really great science, really great science over there that has demonstrated these often counterintuitive notions like the one I gave you before, Elizabeth Loftus's work saying, if you use hypnosis, if you use these suggestions, you can induce false memories. And that practice stopped. If you interview children in a highly suggestive manner, like the work I was doing in the early 90s, you can induce false reports and people can go to jail for things they didn't do. And those practices stopped and interviewing improved overnight. So a lot of the work that I do and people like me do is really towards social justice. It's towards fairness. It's towards improving the system and helping everybody understand the fragility of eyewitness memory, the fragility of this type of evidence and and how, you know, if it's mishandled, if there's problems, this could cause havoc in many people's lives, not just the accused, but remember, if you're prosecuting the wrong guy, the bad guy's still out there
1: doing bad things to other people. You mentioned the change that took place uh, recently, Jan 1 of, of, of 2020, as far as you know, police and, and, and lineups. But what, what changes would you like to see take place in the field of forensic psychology uh, in the future?
2: Well, again, I'll stick with just my little area in forensic psychology, the issue of eyewitness memory. Well, the next thing that's going to happen is I'm, I'm actually going to work with the California legislature. I'm going to work, uh, there's, there's a really good senator who helped push that legislation through. And we're hoping to limit the use of another highly suggestive type of identification test that's done all the time in the field called an in-field show up. And this is crazy. And if someone grabs your bag and you say, oh, yeah, he was a a young 20-something Latino male with short hair, guess what happens after that? Everybody in the area who happens to be a young Latino male with short hair will be stopped, detained, often handcuffed because they might be the bad guy, and presented individually to the witness in the field. This is a crazy, suggestive identification procedure. Unbelievably, I've done for the last, uh, I guess it's been since 2012, I've been working with the sheriff. L.A. County Sheriff, and more recently, the University Police, to stage what we call field simulation experiments. What we do is we immerse students in what they're led to believe is an actual police investigation. So we have actually a young Latino male steal a laptop in front of a group, and we call the police. And an officer comes to take the report. And then when he comes to take the report, he says, oh, the sheriff has detained someone who matches the description, bring the witnesses down to make an identification. And we have folks go down there and identify this guy sitting in a squad, front of a squad car in handcuffs, exactly like stun in actual cases. And what the findings are surprising and should be disturbing for a lot of folks. The fact is if the guy's about the same height and weight and has about the same clothes He gets falsely identified, and we've done this with thousands of people now over the years. He gets falsely identified more than a third of the time by witnesses who just saw him in perfect lighting 20 minutes earlier. If he's even a different height and weight, it's pretty close to the same. People feel very pressured during this. It's very hard to be a witness. They'll tell us afterwards, I felt pressured to make the identification. And they tend to make these decisions with a high degree of confidence that is very, very powerful in court. So what we've been doing lately in our research through these field studies is we've been piloting a new way of doing a more fair identification test in the field on a laptop computer to get away from show up. So the next uh, low hanging fruit, if you will, uh, as far as passing good legislation and, and trying to influence things is to to reduce the use of show-ups in the field. Mm.
1: Dr. Mitch Eisen, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to do your podcast, True Crime, False Memory.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: And my man, we are back. Okay, so Dr. Mitch, tell me, how did you first discover the medium of podcasting? Well, I got this friend, Tim Street.
2: Who produces podcasts authentic productions? And Tim and I are good friends. Our, our daughters go to film school together. and he's been in podcasting forever. he he produces YouTube and podcasting and he's been telling me I've been you know, we talk, he asked me about my work. I've been telling him these stories of folks I work for, wrongfully accused, mistaken identifications, false memories. He says these, stories are fascinating to you. You really got to put them on a podcast and I'm kind of resistant and I'm, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't have time, all the excuses that come up. And, and then the idea, I didn't want to insult the, the people involved, maybe the prosecutors or the judges. I, I just didn't want to get involved. And then I realized over time, the more people who know about this, the better. I mean, whatever I can do to increase the presence of knowledge in this area about the fragility of eyewitness memory, about the problems, about the social justice issues involved, the better. So I
1: jumped in, man, <laughs> and started doing it. <laughs> you make that uh, sound like such an easy process, but, but tell me about the process of, of creating uh, this show. Tell me the origin story of how you put it together.
2: Right. Well, Well, Tim... Tim Street and his his assistant Emma, they basically they're pretty they're pros at this. They know how to do this, and uh, this is again authentic productions. and And Tim basically said, "Hey, you know, this is the idea. I like your idea. Just um, I'll tell you how to do it." He actually he did the nuts and bolts, the hard stuff. You know, getting websites together. You know, getting the the infrastructure together. And then he said, you know, now produce a product. So I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I mean, I thought maybe I'll go interview other, uh, you know, other researchers. Maybe I'll have guests. I didn't know what to do. And then I, I said, I, I don't have time for that. Not, I don't even want to try to figure it out. I figured I'll just tell the stories. You know, I, I like telling stories. I, I do it for a living. I teach, right? So I, I sat down with a glass of wine. I I used to be a musician, so I got I got the gear here, you know. I analog to digital gear. I got an old microphone, propped it up, and and told the stories, and and they came out pretty well. The story just flowed out. You know, I'd been telling it to students a lot of these stories for years, and I told one, and it seemed to work out pretty well. And I told another, and told another, and it, and I had it. I had some uh, some content. Then Tim and Emma. Uh, they get together, Emma Carlucci. They got together and and they produce them. They put music to the stories to to make it more appealing. And it, I love what Emma does. She's really something, you know. She she puts really great music to it, and and it gives a nice vibe to the story. And and that's pretty much it, man. I once every week or two, I sit down and tell the story. I send it off to Emma, and and she uh,
1: <laughs> basically
2: puts it to music.
1: Yeah. So for folks who haven't got a chance to listen to true crime, false memory, uh, give me the elevator pitch uh, of what the show is about. All right. Basically what I'm doing is I'm
2: I'm telling the stories of the more interesting cases I've worked on. I, I work on these cases a lot. I get calls almost every day from lawyers looking for consultation in my area of expertise. I've been doing it for over 20 years. I mean, I've worked on thousands of cases, many, many hundreds for sure. So as over the time, I've certainly encountered many folks, there was a there was a lot more reason to believe they were not good for it than they were good for it. You know how it is, you cast a, a wide net for sharks, you're going to come up with plenty of sharks, you're going to come up with some, <laughs> some barracudas, some tuna, and every now and then you're going to come up with a dolphin. And when you get a kid like this caught up in that web, it's scary business. Scary business for the lawyer, scary business for for folks working on the cases. So these are interesting and important stories. They're not just stories of the the falsely accused. They're also stories of the victims, the people who had this terrible encounter and how they came to to mistakenly identify someone, how they came to to produce this false memory. So basically what I do is I tell the story from the beginning, from the crime onto the investigation, onto the trial, and of course, through the verdict. And I basically break the case down. It's a procedural, just like you'd see on television with a CSI, where you have the crime and then you have the investigation and they reveal through the investigation, the science underneath that shows the problems or the power of the evidence, the inside story. And I try to embed it in science. I try to make the science interesting, available, the same way I would to a jury, because that's how you teach to a jury. You teach it in common sense language, everyday language. Nobody wants to hear from some pointy-headed professor using all sorts of weird jargon, because that's often gobbledygook. If if you can't explain it in plain English terms, it doesn't make any sense. So I tell him these stories in that way to kind of bring it home to folks who have no background in this area, so they can both enjoy the interesting science behind it, and for folks who enjoy the sort of procedure, who, who like looking at behind the yellow tape, <laughs> what's going on and, and behind the scenes. And that's essentially what it's about.
1: Yeah, because you've been in this line of work for a very, very long time. And you're obviously, you know, extremely educated being that you're Dr. Mitch Eisen. And I know you've come across some very intriguing and tough or maybe emotional cases. Is there a story that you've done so far in your podcast that, I don't know, kind of personally kind of hit you a little hard? And Would you mind describing
2: that episode? I mean, there's so many. I mean, the, the stories I tell originally are the ones that hit me hard. And of course, the saddest ones are the ones that didn't turn out well. I mean, when it turns out well, you're like, well, it, yeah, it sucked. It sucked that you're falsely accused. It sucked that in this country, if you don't have money, you sit in jail for many months awaiting trial without having been proven guilty to await your chance. But when those folks get off, you're all right. You know, it's like, well, at least it turned out. The sad ones are the ones that don't turn out. I think I've recorded a couple of these. I'll just, I'll name episodes and I'll tell the story. I think of the, the Orange County flash or the story of this, this young boy 19-year-old kid, he's he's on his way home uh, from the library, and this some guy in the neighborhood had been flashing young women. And I mean, you know, it's an ugly sex offense that has a pretty steep punishment, lifetime registration on a sex offender list right next to pedophiles and rapists. And somebody had been doing this. And this kid, and they said he's he's a young Latino male, and he had these. Big thick rimmed glasses on a silver bike. And they stop this kid, but he's got no glasses and he's riding a black bike. And they reach into his backpack and they find some wire rim glasses. And essentially they say, Oh, well, he's got glasses, he's got the bike, it must be the guy. So they go to the first witness. And the first witness is an 80-plus year old woman. And she looks at him and she says, I don't know, I'm not sure. And the police actually push her and say, Would you like another look? Basically suggesting <laughs> that he must be the guy. in one of these show-ups I just described earlier, you know, being presented alone. And then they, not only when she says she's not sure, they don't accept that, they push it. They push it and they get her to identify. Without going into too many details, they also skipped some of the most important safeguards that you'd use when you do an identification test, which is to tell the witness beforehand that you shouldn't assume this is the guy because nobody could wrap their head around the idea that you're in there in handcuffs just because you happen to be walking through an area and match a general description, right? They assume he must be the guy. They skipped it. They get her to say, yeah, I think so. Then they go to the other witness who's younger and maybe more capable. And they say, before they start, the other witness already identified him, basically sealing his fate. And again, They didn't, they didn't admonish. Now I know it's just a misdemeanor and what makes me sad about it? I had a 19 year old kid at the time. I had a boy and I knew this boy's life was pretty much over. I knew that found guilty of this and put on the sex offender list. He couldn't even go to a beach in Orange County. Couldn't live near a school. Probably couldn't even have his own kids without them being taken away because he's on the sex offender list. And it was so clear in this particular case it was so clear that this wasn't the guy. The bike was wrong, the glasses were wrong, the procedures were so wildly suggestive. I actually and I never do this <laughs> I called the district attorney. Now why? Because these are young folks. Misdemeanor court is young folks, new attorneys. Defense attorneys are brand new. <laughs> the, the prosecutors are brand new. The judges half the time are brand new too, or they're teaching them how to do it. I told them, I said, listen, I never do this, but I'll tell you, this is not the guy. There's, there's more reason to believe that he's not good for it than he's good for it. And I did my best, but they went forward and, and they pushed it forward. And, and the young defense attorney, she wasn't very capable. She had some problems. And, uh, and he was found guilty. And I called the young defense attorney afterwards and says, listen, I, I really, I mean, this is a, this is a big deal. I'd like to, to help with the appeal. I also have a good friends at the innocence project. Cause I, I do pro bono work for the innocence project on people who've been wrongfully convicted. And my friend at the innocence project, Justin Brooks at the Southern California innocence project said, yeah, it's just a misdemeanor. And it was recent, but as a favor to you, I'll, I'll actually look at the case and I asked, I said, can I contact the family? And, and she wouldn't help me contact the family because she was, I think she was worried about being found to be ineffectively, ineffective as a lawyer, which is kind of a big deal. If, you, if you're found to give ineffective assistance as a young attorney, it can hurt your career. So that was a sad one for me personally, just because I think when you have a kid that age and you realize what's happening to him, I mean, there's been worse ones. I mean- there are some cases that I tell on the podcast of that one, probably the most heartbreaking, is a 14-year-old kid who was hanging out with one of his knucklehead friends from middle school who was ganged up. And the police rolled up, and that got him in the gang book. That's all it takes. One field identification card, hang out with one of your friends. Got him in a gang book, and that gang was involved in a horrible shooting. And he happened to match the description of the shooter, young, light skin, shaved head, and they put him in a six pack. and It's a photographic lineup, and in this particular photographic lineup, he was the only young, light skin, shaved head. And this oh, poor man. kid, yeah, yeah, a serious businessman. They prosecuted him as an adult. You can't do that in California anymore without a judge's approval. But he's a fourteen year old. You know what happens to a 14-year-old who gets prosecuted as an adult? They get sent to the same prison as the adults. But at that time, this is a while ago, you can't hang in the adult population because you're just this skinny little kid. So the, where do they put him? Solitary. So here's a 14-year-old kid at Pelican Bay Prison in solitary confinement until he can grow big enough to defend himself in the general population. That was a very sad story. It took me a long time to get over that one. And there were problems with the lawyers there. And there were problems with the situation. There were problems with the cops. And sometimes things go south, man.
1: You know, you've been studying this for a very, very long time. You know, you're an expert in this field. From doing this podcast, what have you learned about the study of forensic psychology that you didn't know before? What have you personally learned from your own show?
2: I don't know. I think I've... What I'm doing in the show... Is what I'm doing in court, and to some degree, what I'm doing in the classroom. I'm trying to bring these stories home in common sense language in a way that people can resonate with. So they can feel it the way I feel it, you know, that they could see it through my eyes. And I think that as a teacher, you know, you try to do this in the classroom. And then in court, you're doing this crazy short form, you know, where you're just answering questions, this weird artificial question and answer format with objections and formalities and rules. But on the podcast, I could tell the story very free. You know, I I could really, I could teach it in depth in a way that I can't teach it in the classroom. I don't have the time that I I can't express to the jurors in that brief question and answer format. So... I guess I haven't learned more about science, but um, I've learned that my science can be merged with my art. That This has become my art. I'm not playing music these days. I'm just recording these stories. It's, so it's, uh, for me, it's been a growth in the merging of my art and science, I
1: think. Now, Dr. Mitch Eisen, you've come to a part of the show called our Podcasters Picks. Now, this is when I asked the special guests of this episode to provide me with their top three favorite podcasts that they listen to that we should be listening to and describe them to the audience. So, Dr. Mitch, take it away.
2: All right. I'm embarrassed to say what I told you. I told you privately, so I'll say it publicly. Gosh, I, I really hadn't listened to podcasts before I did this. I mean, really great radio has become podcasts because people want to hear great stories. So, you know, things that I'd heard on NPR that I love to listen to have become wonderful podcasts. And I I love listening to This American Life. I love listening to The Moth Storytelling Radio Hour. Of course, that's not very original and very interesting or insightful. I have delved in a little bit since starting and I have listened to a podcast called Murder Book by Michael Connolly. who's an author, also produced by my friend Tim Street in Authentic Productions. And I like it. I like the inside story. This is an ex-cop telling the inside. I, I like to know what goes on behind the tape. I like that stuff. I also, one of my ex-graduate students has a wonderful podcast called Psychologia, uh, Amaya Perta, Amaya Skaret Perta, Psychologia. She and and she tells she's a very good storyteller, and she tells stories oftentimes with a crime twist, inside stuff. Well, again, with the science of psychology embedded. So I I dig that, and and I have to tell you, you know, I I'm not a a big money person. Never been. I'm an academic. You know, I chose a career that <laughs> that's a, as a teacher. <laughs> you know. Um, I've been convinced to get involved in learning to trade in the stock market lately. And I listen to there I'm part of this group, Chris Hansen and Chris Lamb, these guys, Investing from the Beach. I think these guys are geniuses and they they could teach me how to trade, they could teach me how to read charts, but what they teach in the podcast is how to think because trading's hard. People freak out, you know, they get greedy, they get scared, we all freak out and they teach us how to think. And so it's interesting, although they're teaching me about trading, they're teaching me about stocks, they're really teaching me about life. And I listen to that podcast a lot, Investing
1: from the Beach. Well, these are all very, very interesting picks and I cannot wait to personally check them out myself. And, and Dr. Mitch Eisen, you know, before we get out of here, why do you podcast? And I really believe that I believe that telling these
2: stories is important. I believe it's important for a social justice perspective. I think it's important for a general justice perspective that if we're all on the same page, if we all understand about the fragility of eyewitness evidence, then the courts are going to treat it better. Then we're going to have policy passed that, includes more fairness more protections against people who can't defend themselves people who aren't wealthy who can't put on that powerful OJ type defense with the dream team right and and to advance both science and practice in this area and as i noted it i was surprised i didn't realize this would happen that my science has now become my art and i'm enjoying it and i'm getting something out of it myself personally
1: Oh, Dr. Mitch Eisen it is such a pleasure having you on the show I love your podcast and I'm a big fan of you I swear when you're in Brooklyn we had to go out to a jazz club and put on some some Wayfares like we're the Blues Brothers and and, and vibe out and talk podcasts man but I I really appreciate what you do and once again thank you for using your passion for science and turning it into art and I think that's a beautiful and eloquent point that you made there so please everyone go check out True Crime False Memory right now Take care, brother. All right, thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Dr. Mitch Eisen. You can find his amazing podcast, True Crime, False Memory, on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This episode was mixed by Compost Media Flow. Music for this episode was produced by Richie Quake. And are you down with OPP? If so, Please be sure to check out our website, opp.news, for the latest in podcast industry news, podcast reviews, and our latest exclusive interviews. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well. Well, with that being said, I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. God bless. Till next time.